Hi, and welcome to Journey Through the Word, a podcast that takes us through the scriptures, one book and one message at a time. I'm Jeff Gilbert, and I'll be your guide through the Bible to help you better understand God's Word, what He wants to teach us, and more about His Son, Jesus Christ. Hi, today we're in chapter 17 of Acts, and Paul and Silas are continuing on their missionary journey. It says that Paul has been teaching for three Sabbaths, and he's entering into the synagogues of the Jews still. So people he's preaching to have a basic understanding. They've been brought up in the religion of Judaism. They understand God and the scriptural and scriptures and the principles that, that Paul's teaching about. But then Paul introduces something new, and that's how he met Christ, and how it was necessary for Christ to come and to die and rise from the dead to bring salvation to them. And when he teaches those things, the people are listening to him, and he kind of has a mixed uh, reception. He's got those people who say, wow, I really love this message, and the Holy Spirit is speaking to their heart and convincing them that what Paul is talking about is really true, and it's what they need for their lives. And they accept those things, and they begin to follow Paul and his teachings, and they begin to follow Christ. Then there are those who are hard, fast Jews. We call them Judaizers because they keep trying to tell everybody, no, we have to follow the the laws and the regulations that our forefathers have followed. Paul tells them Jesus fulfilled all the law, but they don't want to do that. They want laws and regulations. They want something tangible that they can see and touch and feel and make check marks. Oh, I did this, 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 and this today, and because of those things, I'm, I'm pleasing to God. However, God doesn't work that way. We're only pleasing to God, Paul tells them, through Jesus and through his death and resurrection and the salvation that he brings to us. So there's a separation of the people, those who believe and follow and those who get really angry because he's trying to change their whole life. Some people just don't like change. And when they're forced to make that decision, it says in the Bible, it says they're jealous And because of that, they seek to drive Paul out or to even kill him at times, at least beat him and persecute him. So in this case, he he flees after a while, after some believe, some don't believe, and there's a separation. It names some of the people there that believe. It's really nice that, you know, the Bible is very clear about the believers and the unbelievers. Paul leaves. Those who believe and are in Paul's side lead them out of the city. And he goes from there with this persecution from these religious people. So imagine religion, which you can easily imagine today, of various religions, where people people believe they're doing the will of God by killing or maiming or persecuting those who don't agree with them and are jealous because those people have something real that people want to follow and learn. When he gets to Berea, and Berea from Thessalonica is about 45 miles journey. And when he gets there, he finds people who are, you know, in pretty much the same category. Some are willing to receive and some are, aren't willing to receive. But they, it says that they were no, more noble and they received the word there with all eagerness. And they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So this is good too. 
We shouldn't just take things at face value when somebody tells us. We should examine them and apply them to Scripture and say, are these things really true? Did God really say them? So these were the Bereans. You know, in a lot of places in the world, there's Christian Bible schools, and they call them Berean schools, or, you know, I've, I've heard of them anyway. And in those places, it's they call them that because they're people who search the Scriptures and try to learn the Scriptures. And in Berea, there were some who believed, and some of them were Greeks. It says some of them were women of high standing as well as men. So, you know, another thing about Christianity is Christianity treats women on par with men. It, it, in any place where Christianity, a real faith is, is planted, where you see real Christians, you see women treated very well. And in hard religions, where they're legalistic and, and the opposite, you see that the women aren't treated well. They have to cover themselves. They have to walk behind the man. You know, they have no standard in life. Some countries, because of religion, the women can't drive a car. They can't be seen in public. It's just horrible. God doesn't want it that way. Here, he makes a point of saying there were women, they were in high standing, and they believed. How about that? But then when the Jews, going back to Thessalonica, learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul of Berea, they came there and they started to agitate and cause problems again. Wherever there's a blessing being preached and people want to hear the word of God, you can bet that the enemy and the flesh will stir up these religious people, these horrible people, to come and agitate and try to drive the blessing away. You have to be prepared for it. The same thing, you know, when uh, Jesus said, a sower went out to sow and he, plant, he, he scattered the seed and some fell on good ground, but right away the enemy came and snatched it away because the enemy doesn't want us to have a blessing. So we have to fight and be prepared for that. So when these guys came, the brothers immediately sent Paul on his way by sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. So now Paul is separated from them, and now he's gone on his way. And he, they took him to Athens. How about that? So now he's in a big city in Greece, and he sent word for Silas and Timothy to come as soon as possible, probably because he saw, well, we have an opportunity here, I need help. So while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him because he saw the city was full of idols. Imagine. It's not hard to imagine. The world today is filled with idols. We see idols in churches that call themselves Christians. In different religions, we see idols. For example, in Buddhism, they have an idol. In Islam, you say, well, I don't think there's any idols in Islam. Islam was, face, was founded on the basis of idolatry. And if you see that black box there that's in Mecca, originally they had accumulated all the idols from the different clans to put them in one place to unify their religion. It's based on idolatry. Even today, they have to hold beads and count beads. This is all idolatry. Counting on rubbing beads and running beads and saying, you know, ritualistic prayers. All of these things are idolatry. In yards around the world, you see statues of different people and uh, a saint for this and a saint for that on the dashboard of your car. People wear crosses around their neck. And they say, well, that's not idolatry. I'm just showing people that I'm a Christian. It's a symbol of my faith. But we don't need a symbol of our faith, right? We are the symbol of our faith. We are by our behavior, by our actions, by our words. We are representing Christ, not the symbol around our neck. And what makes a difference are all of these movie stars and rock stars and famous people who live anything but godly lives wearing crosses. Are they also symbolizing Christianity? 
So you see, this is idolatry that doesn't really mean anything. We should be careful to avoid it. Paul was really stirred up by this kind of behavior. And when he went in, he, you know, he said, I think you're a religious people. Imagine that he went into the, the synagogue of the Jews and the devout people in the marketplace every day. And there were two groups here that the Bible mentions. One is the Epicureans. So remember, we're in Greece now, in the heart of Greece. So lots of philosophies, lots of you know, intelligentsia there. The Epicureans were a religious cult who followed Epicurus, and they believed in pleasure was the main thing. So they were kind of hedonistic. Anything, as long as you were being pleasured, that was okay. That was the goal in life. And then there were the Stoics, who were kind of anti-pleasure, right? They were more reasoning and fact-filled about life. None of them were believers. None of them were Christians. They were anti-religious. And so when Paul came there and began to speak, what did they call him? A babbler. They said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of some foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So it's really interesting. So they brought him to the Areopagus. And they say, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? So, you know, they're their brains are polluted with this worldly knowledge so that they call him a babbler. They don't understand anything spiritual. We have that today. Lots of people they don't understand anything spiritual. And so he went there and they said, you're bringing strange things. We want to know what they mean. And the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. How about that? It's not dissimilar to what we have today. We carry on conversations. We always go, hey, what's new with you? What's new in the world? What's new with your job? We always want to know what's new. But they wanted to hear new philosophies and new trains of thought so that they can philosophize and show how smart they were by talking about these things. Then Paul says something very unusual. Standing in the midst, he said, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Interesting, because we would think, well, no, they're not religious. They don't believe in gods. They think that what he's talking about is babbling. Why would he say that? Because these are religions people create for their own life. Even people who say, I don't believe in God. I'm an atheist. That becomes their religion, and they have to prove and make evidences about their atheism. It becomes their own religious philosophy. And these guys were also religious. And why did he say that? He said, I passed along and I observed objects of your worship. I also found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So anyway, if you were to go there today, there are, at least I know of one monument that says to the unknown God that's left there. In history, it tells us that what they would do is that they would let a sacrifice go, not Christians or Jews, just people in general, would let an animal go, and where the animal would stop and rest, they would sacrifice it there. But because they didn't believe in God, they didn't know Jesus, they would make a monument and say to the unknown God. They perceived there was a God, but they didn't know who he was. That's true in the world today. People perceive that there is God, but they don't know who he is. And when you preach Christ to him, you say, Jesus is that God, just like in Paul's day. Some people receive what you say, and some people reject what you might say. It's the way that it goes. And he said, this unknown God, I make known to you today. Wow, I'm proclaiming it to you. 
He talks about the God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of the heaven and the earth. He doesn't live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needs anything from us. He gave it all to us, life and breath and everything. And he made from everyone, every nation, of every mankind to live on the face of, earth, of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. This is Paul preaching. He's preaching a very powerful message to these intelligent people. You know, we should remember, too, that Paul was a very intelligent guy as well, well-educated in many languages. He says that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet, he's not actually far from each one of us. Did you ever talk to somebody and they have an interest in God, an interest in Christianity, an interest in the times we live in or in the Bible? This is the, they're kind of feeling their way toward God. And they even often say, I don't know why, but suddenly I have a more interest in spiritual things. And it's, it's the thing that God put in our hearts that we should find our way towards him. And yet Paul says, he's not far from us. Praise the Lord for that. When we call to God, he's right there. When we need salvation, he brings it instantly. We can't even count the time that it takes for our heart to desire salvation to the time that God delivers salvation to our lives. It's instantaneous. It's miraculous. He doesn't wait even a millisecond. Salvation takes root in our heart. And he says, for in him we live and we move and we have our being. So Paul is preaching a great message here. And, you know, we should remember, too, that God is not far from us. And if you need God, we don't have to struggle and fight for him to hear us. We go to him. How do we go to God? We go to him through Jesus. That's the way now. In the Old Testament, you had to wash yourself, wear clean clothes, sacrifice an animal, divvy the sacrifice up correctly, take the blood from when you sacrificed it and put it on an altar and hope that he received your sacrifice, that you did everything correctly. And that was only so that your sins wouldn't be seen for the time being. And then you had to do it again and again and again. But when Paul preaches, he's assuredly preaching that Jesus came as the sacrifice for us all, and that his blood covered us again and again and again with no works, you know, no works. We don't have to go and sacrifice an animal. He doesn't have to die again and again, one sacrifice for us for all time. And continually we go to him. We want to pray to God. How do we go? Through the blood of Jesus. You know, God, we can pray this way. God, I'm coming to you not because I can justify coming to you, not because I deserve to come to you, but because Jesus died for me and he allows me to come to you and suddenly the gates of fellowship are open with God. He's very, very near to us. Praise the Lord for that. He also doesn't dwell in temples. We don't have to be in a church to pray. We don't have to go to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem to meet God. Where do we meet him? Right where we are, in our car, in our seat, in our bed. We cry out to the Lord, and he's there near to us. Once I remember a, a friend of mine telling me how he got saved. He was going through a tough time in life. He was driving down the road, and he, and he just happened to turn on Christian radio. The guy wasn't saying anything great, but he was mentioning Bible verses. And suddenly he felt, I need to be saved. 
and he pulled the car over to the side of the road, turned the radio off, turned the car out and said, God save me. And immediately he knew he was saved. And he sat there and cried and cried and cried because God had forgiven him and saved him in that moment. There's no rule. There's no specific process for this salvation. Just to know that God is near to us and wants to save us and the way to come to him is through his son, Jesus Christ. I remember another guy telling me, he said, one night I was in my apartment. I was clicking through the TV channels and I came across some Christian channel. He said, I don't even know who it was or what they said, but I heard a Bible verse or I heard a phrase and suddenly I knew that was the thing that I was missing in my life. And I turned it off and I called upon God and instantly he saved me. And he knew he was saved. There was no formula to it. We could just know that we need the salvation. We know that we need it through Jesus Christ. And God is near to us and ready to save us. So some, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, they mocked. We know that. We know that when we talk to an intelligent person, an educated person, that when we talk about something so simple as the sacrifice, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, they mock because it's not logical for them. And they don't feel a need for him. And then others, you know what? We're going to hear more about this. We want to hear from you. So in the end of the chapter, it says, Some men joined him and believed. Among them were Dionysius and Aeropagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. That's really important. God mentions the people by name because he knows us. He knows us by name. It's important. It's a great momentous occasion when we give our life to Christ and ask him to lead us to God, to save us and lead us to God. When that salvation comes to us, our names are remembered. And the Bible says that they're written down in a book in eternity, never to be forgotten. God knows us. He knows our needs. He knows what we, uh, our problems are in life. And he knows how to help us and to save us. And remember, God knows you by name. He knows your life. Call out to him because he's not very far away.